Uh, right now, we have the Villanews 12 Days of Holiday giveaways going on. If you join our Active Pass membership today, you are automatically entered to win exciting daily prizes from Velonews. Plus, as a bonus offer for Velonews podcast listeners, save 25% when you join Active Pass now through December 12th. Simply visit velonews.com forward slash active pass. That's velonews.com forward slash active pass today. Don't miss out on your chance to win cool prizes from Velonews going on through December 12th. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday evening here at my home office in Boulder, Colorado. I am so excited for today's episode. Um, I have some special guests. You may have heard my first two podcasts with the board members of the Major Taylor Iron Riders Club in New York City. Well, today we have a real treat. We again have Derricka Hendon Barnes, who is the president of Major Taylor Iron Riders on the call. But we also have Mel Corbett who is the founder of the Major Taylor Iron Riders Club. And we have Mildred Smith-Evans, who's been riding for over 50 years, and she was the uh, co-founder of the L&M Club, which was a uh, black cycling club in New York City in the 1970s. And Mel and Mildred have been riding for much longer than many of us, longer than I've been alive. And we're going to have a great conversation today about their experiences in the American cycling community. And I just, I'm just really, really psyched, really overjoyed um, that we have this group together um, to continue this conversation. And we're using it as a kickoff for a very special um, feature coming to villanews.com. And that is we're going to be having a column series um, of members from uh, Major Taylor Iron Riders are going to be writing columns for VelaNews.com about their experiences in the U.S. cycling community, uh, what it's like to be a black rider, what it's like to be a brown rider, what it's like to be a new rider, what it's like to be an experienced rider. And um, this is going to take us throughout 20... 20- so with all that said, with that long preamble, I want to welcome Mel Corbett, Derricka Hendon Barnes and Mildred Smith Evans to the Vela News podcast um, for today's discussion. Um, Mildred, I, you, we, before we got started, you just started telling me an amazing story, the foundation story of your club, L&M Cycling. And I was hoping you could start us off from the beginning and talk about what it was like founding your club and what the cycling scene in New York City was like back in the 1970s and why you wanted to start this club. I rode along with my sister. I'm the youngest of six in my family. And I had an older sister, Lucille, who is 15 years older than I am. And she, um, very adventurous. And she was out there riding her bike. And she joined the New York Cycle Club. And um, I was about 14 years old at that time. And she invited me along because she was tired of being the only black rider with the New York City Cycle Club. And so she, um, we, we started riding with them together. It was the two of us. And um, it just, it was okay. They were much better riders than we were. We were like tagging along, but um, they, 
made sure that we got back. We got to the point where we had to go and they got us back home, but it just wasn't fun for us. So we came up with the idea that, hey, we can do this ourselves, but we can invite the people that we want to ride with, you know, along with us and we can form our own club. So that's what we did. So I, we, we got this bright idea that we see African-American, well, they were black riders in the parks. We saw them in um, Prospect Park and in Central Park. But we said, well, where are they? Why aren't they riding as a group? And so we decided to go out one night and hand out flyers to these, these riders. So I made up this little flyer, um, this little <laughs> written by hand, no internet, and we uh, copied it and we went out there and we handed out, at least I know we had a hundred flyers to hand out and we just handed it out to every black person that we saw riding a bike. And it happened to be mostly male. And I remember it was dark and we were still talking to people about this because people were stopping and they were really, really curious about it because they had never ridden in a group before either. They normally, there's a lot of single riders in the parks. So that first ride was to Tolman Mountain State Park. It's about 40 miles up uh, on 9W, I believe, from the GW Bridge. And um, we met at the GW Bridge and we had at least 25 or so riders to meet with us. And we were shocked. And we did the ride. Um, we had everybody talked about, you know, what we were doing. They were so excited about it and they've never done this before. Um, we didn't look anything like the riders today with all of the gear and the, the nice shirts and everything. We were kind of ragtag looking, but everybody just had a good time and we had fun. And that's what it was all about for us. We wanted to have fun. And so that's pretty much how we started LM and we would call LM Bike Ride because um, Lucille and I uh, scouted the route and everything. That was our bike ride. Mel, you know, you were riding at that time. How would you describe the cycling scene in New York City at that time? I, I assume we're talking about sort of the early 70s, mid 70s. What was the bike? riding scene like and and how did you find your way into organized cycling clubs back then first fred thanks for having me um the cycling scene back in the day and this is back in the early 70s the mid 70s was really more of a cult group uh no one really knew what cycling was about cycling is not uh, a an American sport, and specifically at that time, uh, American sports was basketball, baseball, football. I played basketball, junior high school, high school, college, and I rode a bike for transportation. Uh, I didn't know about long rides or anything like that, and I had never seen a bike race. Uh, I had never seen cycling on television. I hadn't seen really nice bikes. Uh, it was just something that we weren't exposed to. So my introduction into the sport uh, was that I was attending Hunter College and Mildred was there with me. And I was commuting from the Bronx down to Manhattan on 68th Street. I chained my bike up and I go to a class. I come back, get my bike and I ride back to the Bronx. And one day Mildred walks up to me and she says, 
you rode your bike from the Bronx to Manhattan? She said, why don't you come around my club? I said, a club? I said, what do y'all do? She said, we go on bike rides. I said, really? So she gave me a fly. I came out one day. I was on uh, 135th Street Open Pass, which you've done many times, uh, going up to 9W. And they came by. And I was waiting for a friend of mine who was late. And so they weren't stopping for me. And I had never seen a group of cyclists and a group of black cyclists riding together in formation. It was something that was amazing. They were heading up to uh, over the GW Ridge. So it was a sport that I was totally not familiar with. I mean, I, I would go through uh, Central Park and see recreational riders, but that was basically it. It was a sport that I did not know. I had to learn the sport from there. And my introduction to the sport came through LNF. Derek, it's really interesting hearing that um, that story of Mildred talking about, you know, being out there riding with the New York Cycle Club and being like the only African-American person. And, you know, they're nice enough and they're taking you along the ride, making sure you're not getting the drop. But it just kind of doesn't feel, you know, doesn't doesn't feel right. That sounds a lot like some of the stories we heard from Major Taylor a couple months ago. Yeah, those are, I think when uh, I actually got a chance to, to hear Mildred tell a story, I, I think what amazed me the most is that it happened. I think Mildred, correct me, you said about fifty years ago, is when is when it's when it's when she had her experience, and I'm blown away that the culture hasn't changed in fifty years. You know, albeit they are definitely trying to make changes now, and and I and I've talked to the president Peter a couple times, and and he's definitely making moves to do that, but it's a cultural thing that they have you know that's just how it is so it'll be a long time to change that i applaud them for making the effort but i'm amazed that it was 50 years of the exact same experience that not only mildred myself share but many 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 other riders have had the exact same experience so well and i think it it also speaks to like we talked about uh, a couple months ago the importance of having a club where it's, you know, people who look like you, who you can relate to, come from the same neighborhoods you are, et cetera, et cetera. And Mildred, I'm, I'm really curious about that. You know, when you did have this riding club and it's for, for black riders, um, you know, what was, what was the importance of that? You know, the, the more and more that you rode with them, you know, compared to riding with uh, a bunch of uh, white riders, why was it important? What was the importance of being able to ride with other black riders at that time? We were able to share a lot of our experiences um, that we had, um, either riding or just experiences in general. We we it was it was just a nice camaraderie, and um, compared to the New York Cycle Club, we were just there. And but with LM, um, the people that we all these people were strangers, but we just gelled. There was something that we had in common, and that was riding bicycles, and, and we just um enjoyed each other's company. We turned it into pretty much a social club because we would do things like have we had picnics when we went to Tallman every year. Um, we had an um, end of year um, celebration, um, but we we made each other feel good about what we were doing. And um, I don't know, it, it, it just was, it just felt right. <laughs> I, I can't say more than that. It just, 
it was just a good experience for all of us to get together. And then it was a unique experience. I just want to add, Fred, um, being a member of LM, what what made LM special was first, as a rider, as a bike rider in the city of New York, you rode by yourself all the time. Again, you pretty much commuted, you know, you went to visit someone, which was in essence commuting. So all of a sudden you had an opportunity to ride with other people that like riding bikes. So that camaraderie was something that as a single solo cyclist, you hadn't experienced before. The other thing with LM, what made LM special was that those flyers that Mildred gave out, then people were from all over the five boroughs. So you had people from the Bronx, you had people from Queens, you had people from Brooklyn, you had people from New Jersey, right on through. And so we all got together as a group and rode. Obviously, we all loved riding, but we never had anybody to ride with. Now we had a group that we could ride with, which we were welcomed, obviously, which was very unique, ran by two sisters. Then the other thing, the rides took us all over the five boroughs in New Jersey. So we were riding the places we had never ridden to on the bike. All of a sudden, we're up in Westchester. We're out in Long Island. We're in Staten Island. We're in New Jersey. It just it just opened us up. I mean, I think I spoke to Mildred the other day, and I said, I'd never been somewhere where I could ride somewhere, and there was no lights. I could just ride right, as fast as I want. So that's what the club experience did, what L&M did in terms of introducing all of us to the sport of cycling. You know, having ridden those roads, it um, it's it's a trip to get that far up away from the city and you feel like you're in a totally new world. So I could imagine, especially if, if that was your world, you grew up in it, you knew the concrete jungle, to be able to get out there and adventure around um, was really something else. You know, in my conversation with Derica and the other um, board members – a few months ago, we touched on a number of topics about the challenges, the inherent challenge that face um, black, Latino and Asian riders um, in American cycling, because cycling does tend to be a very white sport. And as a black rider at that time, I mean, did it feel strange at all to be involved in this sport that, you know, Mel, like you said, this wasn't basketball. This wasn't football. This was a sport that had its roots in Europe and that traditionally was more of a white sport. Um, what was that like for you? And was there any tension that that created with the wider community or even your own community? It, it definitely was different, uh, Fred. Um, it was so, so much of it was the unknown. You didn't know what to expect from the sport. Um, another aspect of the sport which prevented African-Americans from being actively involved was the cost of the sport. At the highest level, the equipment was so expensive that many African-Americans, they wouldn't consider riding a bike in a serious bike because it costs too much. If you want to play basketball, you just need a pair of sneakers and a basketball and you can get out track, you name it, but all of a sudden you're spending, uh, you know, upwards to $1,000 for a bike, $500 for a bike. A young kid is not going to spend that money. Then there was the safety aspect of being comfortable enough to ride a bike in the streets and down a hill at 30, 40 miles an hour. That is just not for everybody out there. So that, that experience, you had to be an innate bike rider, a person who loved to ride and was very comfortable riding. And I think that's what L&M represented. But to your question, the larger question, because we weren't comfortable clubs and we didn't even know about the white clubs, uh, that there were white clubs around, 
um, it wasn't as if we had a home. The only home we had was really L&M. And you mentioned the Red Caps. The Red Caps were in Prospect Park. They were another group of guys. Majority of them were from the islands. And obviously in the islands, they knew cycling. African-Americans didn't know cycling. So they had their little group and they rode. And they, again, were estranged from the white cycling community. They created their own group. And then you had L&M. So back in that day, in the 70s, it was L&M and it was a Red Cap. There was no other black cycling clubs out. So it wasn't like you were venturing out to go to a white cycling club and you were the only black person and not feeling comfortable. I think Lucille and I, uh, and I we had a slightly different um, experience in that uh, we rode bikes. We rode bikes in, in um, Prospect Park. We rode bikes in Central Park. But there wasn't, um, and it, we didn't feel uncomfortable about it, but we just felt that um, Lucille was a part of the New York Cycle Club. There was no else, nowhere else for us to turn. So it was important for us to start something on our own. Um, but we wrote for recreation, basically. It, it wasn't as serious as it, as it is now with the expensive bikes. Um, the the long distances, we weren't we we weren't concerned about all of that stuff then. It, it was just get on the bike and let's have some fun, and that's what we did. It wasn't a it, it, we didn't even look at it. I don't think as a sport, we looked at it as exercise and we looked at it as recreation, but um, and a way to get others out to do the same things that we were doing. So Mildred, how would you? Um help new riders at that time overcome some of the the central cha- the inherent challenges of cycling it's you know cycling you get tired your butt hurts you crash you get a flat tire like there's all these things that happen to a new rider where at some point they're like oh god i this is so frustrating i want to quit this thing you know you're the experienced one you've been doing it since you were a girl how would you how would you bring some of these new riders along and get them past these these early hurdles well uh- that was the one thing that was good about our club. The club was basically a lot of guys who rode on their own anyway. And they would, if anyone um, needed help with riding or um, getting their bike fixed or information about um, getting the right equipment so that your butt doesn't hurt or getting the proper seat, we had people there that could tell us these things. Um, because they've been, they have been riding a long time, but basically riding by themselves or with a, you know, a friend or something. So we had a lot of people that brought some expertise to the group. And, um, so it wasn't really up to me or Lucille. Lucille and I and another sister, Annette, we organized the rides. We scouted the rides. Um, we put out the, um, cue sheets and everything. But the riders themselves brought a lot to the group as well. So um, I don't remember my being the one telling someone how to uh, ride better or um, I didn't I wasn't one of those that give out that information. There were people that did have that expertise. Derek, as you're hearing these stories from Mildred and Mel, I mean, it's uh, to me, it feels like some of the DNA of what Major Tyler Iron Riders Club is today. It was sort of put together um, during these, you know, 
in these clubs and these experiences back then. I mean, when you, when you hear these stories, I mean, what, what comes to mind of what Major Taylor Ironriders as a club does today? It certainly seems like the basis on what they created for their, the basis on which they create their own club is still a common thread that goes, runs straight through the Ironriders to this day. Like they needed to create a space for themselves so they can go out and have fun. And the Iron Riders came from that. They were birthed from that, that very same club. So we created our own space. We wanted to have a bunch of riders to come out, of course, have fun, be safe, but also have a safe space where they can come in and enjoy each other, feel included and feel, you know, supported and, and welcomed. You know, so I, I, I see that. And just hearing Mildred tell, talk about it. It's just like that. That's the common thread that I want to continue to have to the Iron Rider. And, um, yeah, but you still got to come out and work a little bit. So, Mel, uh, talk to us about founding the club. You know, you got into cycling through L&M, and then uh, at some point you founded Major Taylor Iron Riders. Take us, uh, take us along on that journey. Well, um, as Ellen and Mildred wound up relocating to Maryland, where she lives now, and Lucille turned the club over to a guy in New Jersey who – he was actually responsible for um, changing the name from L&M to Major Taylor. And, um, but a lot of the rides were in New Jersey. And I was in Brooklyn, along with Prospect Park, the legendary Prospect Park and all the great riders there. We rode more towards Long Island and then maybe northern New Jersey versus southern New Jersey, uh, where this guy was located. So it got to a point where we weren't making the rides. It was too hard to get on the path train to go over into Newark to ride. It didn't make sense for a lot of the Brooklyn riders. So we said, let's start our own chapter of Major Taylor. And we just wound up being Major Taylor Iron Riders. Took the name of the legendary 25th Infantryman, the Iron Riders, and rode 1,900 miles in the 1890s and uh, created the club from there. And we pretty much, uh, many of the riders did, were a part of L&M. Uh, came on with us uh, who were either in the Bronx or the other boroughs, Queens and Brooklyn. And uh, and so it was a, a pretty easy endeavor because once we decided we wanted to form this new club, everyone was just waiting to start and get going with a new kit, uh, new routes, what have you. And many of the riders were the same riders who had been riding for years. Uh, so even though we were kind of two different clubs now, it was Major Taylor, New York, New Jersey, Major Taylor, Iron Riders, we eventually wound up still kind of merging back together, but the same riders. And to kind of answer your question um, in terms of how we recruited, uh, and even when I was with LM, uh, recruited the same way. For me to ask someone to come ride, you had to be a bike rider. It's something that all bike riders know. We could watch somebody ride by and know this is a bike rider. You look at their balance. You look at their comfort level on the bike. It's not about riding fast. It's how comfortable are you on the bike? What is your balance like? And once you see that, you could learn how to ride fast because it's all about group riding. And if you're comfortable on a bike, the group is going to be safe. If you're not a bike rider, then it's a, a it's not a, a good situation because you can endanger a lot of riders. So that's how we recruited people. So when you start to talk about crashes, real bike riders, they crash. What do they do, Fred? How's my bike? They're not worried about the broken arm they got. Is my bike okay? <laughs> They're good enough and they go up from there. So people that ride Major Taylor, they ride LM, 
we're bike riders. That's in our DNA. That's what we do. And so the club grew so quickly because when people saw us on the road, as you had, they were like, who are you guys? And your guys look like you're having so much fun. So we went from being a predominantly black club to pretty much an international club where we have all nationalities riding with us now, which uh, Derek is the, the head of. And it was all about people looking at how much fun we were how much fun we were having riding, how fast we were riding, how safe we were, and they wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's definitely what stands out about my first interaction with Midget Taylor Iron Riders when I was a cyclist in the city was seeing this big group of um, black and Latino, like you said, very international group go by wearing very – uh, loud, expressive kits and uh, looking really fast. And and in our conversations earlier this year, we talked about you know the recruitment power of that. Um, we also talked about you know the the the, the negative experiences. We've we talked about the bias and racism, and you know uh, board members shared their stories of being in places and being stared at by people of like, oh wow, this is weird looking, and you know the implicit bias of not feeling welcome in white spaces as a cyclist, all the way up to the more explicit um, experiences of you know being called names. And I'm curious, um, Mel and Mildred, if in your experiences with your clubs, if you came across any of that, what it was like, if there were moments of, you know, explicit in-your-face racism that you and your club uh, came across out there on the road? More, it wasn't as much um, uh, explicit in terms of dead in your face, but it was implicit. Um, we all know if someone really doesn't want you around and it's almost like they're turning the shoulder to you. The conversation is curt. It's not friendly. It, they're not looking to find out who you are. You know, where did you come from? And and I, for myself, because I started riding so early in groups, one of the things that uh, L&M did, they took these regional rides. There was uh, these big rides. They were rides that were called gear up and gear down. And they were in different parts of the East Coast. And they had like literally hundreds of riders that would come from all over the country. And we would be like some of the only black riders up there. And it wasn't as if somebody said something or was totally disrespectful, but you just, they were almost like looking at you like, why are you here? The kind of routine. And, and that's as harmful as being verbal and physically saying something to you where it was like, you don't belong here. Why are you here? And that's the kind of feeling that at least I remembered having early up when we were like the only blacks at these major rallies, um, Rhode Island, New Paltz, New York, uh, places that we went to ride. It was it was unusual. Yet at the same time, let me not paint a blanket picture of that as if on these rides, uh, the majority of whites were or had this kind of attitude, absolutely not. The majority of riders are bike riders. They love to see other people on bikes, regardless of color, nationality, or what have you. And they were very welcoming and uh, and very friendly. But it was still an element there that was like, wow, you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm not comfortable with this person around me or this particular group around me from there. And so I think that's more of what we, at least what I experienced, Versus something that was late, that you know, became you know, bordering on possible violent or or something to that extent. I would say, uh, like when we went on some of those big 
valleys, uh, most of the times we were we were welcome, but um, I think we were more of a novelty, and they just didn't know what to do with us, <laughs> or or um, didn't understand why we were there. But um, for the most part, I think we were ignored and we did our own thing. And there were other groups like from Jersey, we always met some other group from some other state at these rallies. So we would kind of um, find out about that other black group and how they get started and, and what were they all about. So um, uh, blatant racism, we, I, I, I found it a lot of blatant racism riding in the city from time from Brooklyn to, um, to the GW Bridge or riding out in Coney Island. I mean, you could not get caught out in Coney Island and Sheepshead Bay and places in Brooklyn at night because they will run you out of there in a lot of the ethnic neighborhoods. So the blatant racism was in the city. But when we went out on the road, I saw a lot of um, times when there was great racial pride in um, some of the like truck drivers riding along, honking their horns at us and waving at us and people waving. And and just um, and, and when we went into some of the small towns, like going to New Hope or some of these other places, I think whites were just shocked. They never saw anything like this before. So they didn't, I mean, they didn't uh, do anything. They didn't know what to say, I don't think. I think that it was just shock. Um, so uh, I don't remember anything um, explicit, but um, I do when I rode in New York City, in the, the five boroughs in New York City. I do remember uh, beer cans being thrown at me in certain neighborhoods. And uh, oh yeah, going, going, leaving, and you better be out of Sheepshead Bay at night and Coney Island at night. You don't, you don't ride in those places at night. So um, I found it much more pleasant riding out of the city than I did in New York City. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to echo that because that led you mentioned that uh, Mildred. The most blatant racism that I, I've seen riding a bike for all these years has been people in cars. Uh, it's, it hasn't been cyclists. It's people in cars either cursing at you, spitting at you, throwing bottles at you. That was that's the blatant racism that I've seen on the road. Interesting. Yeah, you know, in our in our discussion with Derricka and the other board members too, they talked about one of the elements of the club is um, making sure you're always very you know you're adhering to all the rules of the road, stopping at every stop sign stopping at every stop light and um, being very respectful of the rules of the road as not to anger motorists and as not to anger even police officers because you don't know what they're going to do. You know, you can, you can, you're in charge of, you're in charge of yourself and, you know, you don't know what town you're coming into or how they're going to react if, you know, if you were to run a red light or, um, you know, not be as respectful as, as possible on the bike. And that is sort of an outgrowth of like that. That's maybe a problem that white riders don't have to deal with as much. It's it's a it's a double whammy for African-American cyclists. Let's, let me just back up and say 
cyclists are not respected on the road. Uh, uh, drivers do not believe that bikes should be on the road. You're taking up a lane, especially with all the bike lanes and what have you. So there's an animosity there, regardless of color. Uh, if you ride a bike uh, and you have to deal with traffic. If you're black, it's a double and it's the double shot that you're dealing with. And so I, I totally agree. I think one of the things I've said to many riders that are starting is that we have to be ambassadors to the sport because when uh, if we do something dumb, like a guy's real close to you and you came up to him, he's at a stoplight and you hit his car, you know, you hit your hand on his hood or something like that. He doesn't see it as, oh, it's this guy. The next guy he sees in the kit, I'm going to buzz this guy because that's one of those guys. So we have to we have to all be on good behavior on the road, and specifically, as I said, as African Americans on on the road from that perspective. Yeah, Fred, I want to, I just want to chime in on what what uh, what Mel was saying. I and this is something you, we had touched on before in our in our podcast with the, with the board members. Like we we do have to to stay together. We do have the double whammy, like you know, Mel said. Not only are we just cyclists who sometimes can annoy motorists as they're driving by or taking over the lane, but you know, we're black cyclists, so we have no idea sometimes these neighborhoods that we're riding into or these towns we're riding through. We just don't know how they're going to respond to us. Hopefully just, you know, let us go about our way or give us a high five or whatever. But I, I agree with, with, with Mel that our biggest opponent, if you will, are people in cars who just don't want cyclists there. It just adds fire to the fuel when they see that we're black. So, and it comes, that boils, comes back to us just saying, like, you know, stay together. You look out for one another, building that that community and that camaraderie amongst club members that when we ride out together, we ride as one, not as an individual. You know, Mel, when you look at how this community and this club structure has progressed from, you know, the early 70s when you have uh, Mildred's Club up to now what Major Taylor and Iron Riders is in the city, um, what are the what are the similarities that you see? I mean, yeah, they're on more, people are on more expensive bicycles now. There's races, there's Strava, you know, there's different tiers of the club and there's major tailors in uh, Jersey and in New York City. But what are the real similarities that you see, sort of the through line that you can see between um, Mildred's Club and, and major tailor iron riders today? You know, Fred, it's, I think it's a real simple answer. A cyclist is a special person, a special human being to ride bikes. We love riding bikes. Here's a funny story. I, I said this to my wife the other day. Um, years ago, I was dating a woman, and we were at a uh, like a Friday gathering, a museum. And one of her girlfriends came up to her and said, I had met before, said, uh, hey, I've heard a lot about you. You're the guy that has the passion for cycling. And the woman I was with said, passion, call it an obsession. That's what he has. He's, he's obsessed. All he does is ride that bike. What's going on? So what that lineage from back in the day, L&M to the day with the Iron Riders, is still a love of riding. We are cyclists. That's in our DNA. That's what we do. Um, obviously, I'm at a point in my career where the benefits for all these years of riding has paid off, uh, along with some good genes. I've said that cycling has been the Ponce de Leon, you know, the fountain of youth for me in terms of the fact that I'm still riding and riding long rides and try to sit in every now and then. It is just something that we love to do. And Mildred gave me 
this passion. Actually, when I ran into her, I told Derek this story a few minutes earlier. I saw her down in Salisbury about 10, 12 years ago, and I hadn't seen her in years. And I gave her a hug and kiss and said, thank you for giving me this lifelong passion, which is what she did. And so everyone from back then to now share the same thing in terms of our love for riding from there and wanting to see other people ride. Because my my uh, uh, my mission now is I'm Johnny Appleseed. I want to introduce as many people I can to cycling. So I'm always looking, recruiting people for the club. Well, and that's that speaks to, I think, the wider conversation that all of us in, in U.S. cycling scene are asking right now, which is, um, you know, Mildred, you had this tremendous success almost 50 years ago, handing out flyers to every black cyclist that you saw to come and ride together in an organized club. And the club that you started eventually lasted down the decades and spawned into two new clubs and has been this club that has gotten hundreds and hundreds and thousands of um, cyclists into the sport. And, and most importantly, cyclists of color, you know, black cyclists, brown cyclists, Asian cyclists, Latino cyclists, the, the type of cyclist that the American cycling scene doesn't have enough of. Um, what does it, what does American cycling have to do to make itself a more diverse sport to get more black riders involved, to get more brown and um, Asian riders into the sport. What are the lessons and the knowledge that you all have picked up through these clubs and these experiences that you think the wider cycling world could learn from to, uh, to attract more diverse people to the sport? That's a big question, Fred. That's a big question. You see, I tried to put it. I tried to put it over. But it kicked it right back over to me. Okay. Definitely, you know, exposure. Right? That's the that's the major thing. Um, one of the I actually I'm a teacher, and uh, actually I, I um, had a uh, a bike club in the school for years. And one of the things that and these are this was middle school kids. Uh, it's just the exposure to bikes and uh, the fact that um, it's safe to ride, uh, to take them to see um, a race. Uh, remember, as you know, you've raced. Uh, races start at 6 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's in the park at that time to see that incredible pack coming by and feel that wind hit you as the pack comes by at that speed, which... For a young person, that experience could be something that they've never seen before and could change their life. Um, and so it's the exposure that is important. And so for all of us, how can we get, how can we put ourselves in front of people? Um, uh, even your magazine, even Bell News, you know, how can Bell News uh, get more exposure? Bell News is for myself. I've read Bell News for years because it was a Bible. And then I wanted to hear about racing and who won and read about this or equipment. Bell News was the go-to for us. But again, outside of us core cyclists, how do we get that word out to them? So I know Derricka has, um, we've been meeting and talking about some of the things we would like to do this summer in terms of um, sponsoring some repair things in the park with the clubs, uh, in terms of helping people with their bikes. Uh, going to communities of color and uh, setting up a table and uh, getting some bikes and just having kids ride and showing kids how to ride from there. So it's going to take a little bit of effort from all sides in order to make this work uh, from there because and even just taking kids out, there is a 
there's a great program, Recycle a Bike, uh, that's out of Brookdale Hospital, where um, uh, Dr. Ed Fishkill, uh, has been running this for years where he gets kids together, kids from the community. Uh, they, they put together old bikes and he takes them on rides. And so actually there are guys who've come through that and actually wrote, written with Major Taylor. So it, it's, it's not an easy task because cycling is still not, uh, visible, uh, out there. You really have to search the sport out to see it. It's not something that the average kid is going to see on television. There's no cycling heroes, obviously. Lance Armstrong, rest in peace. Uh, there's just no one there to, to basically uh, show us, you know, what the sport is like. And so uh, it's going to take that kind of exposure and effort on everybody's part to broaden the sport, and specifically for minority kids. Not to mention the financing that's needed to put them on decent bikes, not expensive bikes. Just put them on bikes in general. Uh, it's it's going to take a, a major effort out there. Hey, friend, I want to I want to chime in on 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 Mel as well. You, to answer your question, I think two of the main components of like how do you diversify it is like equity and access. You know, it's 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 plain as simple as that. Like you know, Mel like Mel and Mildred both said, like it costs a lot of money to buy these bikes. You know, kids see you know, a bunch of cyclists riding around with these super expensive bikes and these fancy kits, and they can't even begin to understand, like, you spent, you know, more than 250 bucks on a bike, and you bought it at a store, not off Craigslist, or, you know, what is it, face, Facebook Marketplace or whatever. <laughs> like, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't imagine, like, how did you get the money to do that? Like, where is your disposable income to make that happen? So if we take that that component out and say, you know, we have a bike for you, we have a kit for you, we have a helmet for you, if you want to learn to ride, show up. You know, if that component could be taken out to a lot of the young riders, that would just, it would introduce them to another another sport beyond basketball, beyond football, or beyond just hanging out with your friends. So if they don't know what's there, they don't know they have the abilities to get the things they need or even have access to get it, they'll never know. And it'll still be like a faraway dream of, you know, trying to be like an, an astronaut or something just as unheard of is equally as, on the same level of, of being a bike rider. I, I'm in Maryland right now, and I am a grandmother. And what I see uh, is uh, families, a lot of families out riding. And um, I would like to see more Black families out riding. Um, and I think that's where it starts, uh, with the family. Um, they they can buy these expensive games and buy a bike and go biking as a family. And um, I don't, I'm not really in cycling as much as Mel and Derricka are now, but um, I'm out, I'm out there and I do, I do plan to buy a bike as soon as I can. As a matter of fact, I bought two bikes for my grandson. He's only two years old. And I'm putting him on a bike. And I think that's what parents need to do. They, um, it's a fun family activity. And um, it's for everyone. You know, Fred, one of the things that uh, it's tragically is we've had to deal with this pandemic. One of the bright things that came out of it is the amount of people on bikes now. Uh, being here in New York, it's phenomenon, I'm sure it's around the country where so many people are riding, uh, obviously avoiding mass transportation, 
uh, and cycling and being in the park is the only activity that people have. If you start to think about all of the things that are not available, movies, plays, uh, uh, traveling. So you know Prospect Park. Prospect Park is jammed with all types of uh, families there with all age kids uh, riding bikes. So this could be almost a, a, a bicycle renaissance, a, a watershed moment in cycling becoming more popular and uh, and being more useful from that standpoint. And I would hope that, you know, that classic tide, a rising tide lifts all ships, that African-Americans will take part in this this renaissance of cycling, which is now taking part specifically here in New York. What do you think, Derek? Do you have any questions for uh, Mildred or Mel? Any um, any stories you uh, you would like them to tell uh, from from back the back in the getting the way back machine and tell some stories from back in the day? Um, not so much as uh, questions. I mean, I think Mildred's done a great job of telling the stories. I've always wanted to hear directly from her because I've heard so much about her for so many years from Mel and how he tells these amazing, enduring stories. Like you know, L and M is the reason why he's still on a bike. Like he owes his entire cycling career to LM Tours and, and they kickstarted and they showed him what it's like. And I think whatever he's learned from them and that experience that he had, he instilled it into the Iron Riders and he passed it down to me. And it's the same camaraderie and community that I want to to have in the Iron Riders and I want us to be able to look out for one another all the time. But I I mean instead of a question I would have to say, you know, thank you to Mildred. And her and her and her sister Lucille for creating LM, having the the in the the forethought to say, you know, we want to create our own space. You know, you did it back then and we are still doing it now, creating a space for ourselves and making people feel welcome when they show up. If you're brave enough to show up, then you know, we got your back. And that's the most important thing. So whatever you the impression you made on Mel, he made on me, and I'm continuing to push it forward, you know, through all the new people that come to join our club. So for that, I say I'm grateful for you for doing that back then. And I continue to carry that comment thread to this day. How does it feel to know that what you started that one night in the park, you know, handing out flower, uh, handing out flyers has now become this major force in American cycling. It's gotten thousands of people into the sport and, and carries on today. I mean, how does that feel? It, it, it's, it's wonderful. And I, the thing, Mel, I have to thank Mel for this because <laughs> of his passion for riding. I mean, when he first came to the club, um, well, many of the, uh, and Mel, you know, several of the uh, other club members, they were like, who is this guy? <laughs> he just kind of came, he came in and he just took over. And um, at least they felt he was taking over. But I felt that Mel kind of formalized our club with his fashion sense and, um, wanting to give us a name that would, I, I guess, be more uh, attractive or, or suited our club better. Um, he he um, is the reason, I think, I would say, that has made this club live the way it has. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the fashion things that, that they did back then, Fred, was they used to wear patches. Right. And before yes. the beginning of the, of, the, of the call, they were showing me the patches that they created back in the day for to see. Look at the patches. Oh, cool. <laughs> Podcast listeners cannot see this, but these are some great patches that Mildred, uh, Mildred is, is holding up from the old uh, yeah, this, cycling patches. This was my, 
This is my jacket. I used to wear this. And I want to show this patch. This is um, this is um, the League of American Wheelmen. They were the national club at that time. Um, and they still might be in existence. I don't even know. Um, they gave out patches for um, special rides, like a half century, a century. And so we picked up on that um, with our club, L&M. And this is one of our first patches that we gave to our riders to Cheesequake State Park um, in 1980. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we were very traditional. We did what other clubs did and um, we were appreciated. And I can see how much we were appreciated because uh, Mel is taking this to a whole other level. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mildred. I mean, I just have a passion for cycling and and to see what your guys were doing, I just wanted to help make it better. And that was my my whole energies that I put in. I was in my 20s uh, and I was just being introduced to the sport and I kind of fell in love and uh, it was just, how can we do it better? Hey, sometimes yeah, I think every club needs its uh, its proverbial Mel. A guy who comes in and is like, ah, I'm full of beans. I got ideas. I got energy, and I have a direction, and we're we're going. And if you're not on the bus, you're not gonna, you're not staying on the bus. But the bus is leaving the station. Fred, history has proved me right. <laughs> history has proved me right. This is 2020. I was talking about the 70s. All right, sir. Well, again, um, my guests today on the podcast were. Uh, Mildred Smith Evans, Mel Corbett, and Derek Ahendon Barnes talking about the LNM Cycling Club and which gave birth to Major Taylor Iron Riders. And um, we're talking probably almost coming up on 50 years of organized cycling uh, club for uh, African American riders in Greater New York City. I really appreciate you calling all coming on the podcast today. Um, and again, please stay tuned to VelaNews.com where we are going to have our column series with Major Taylor Ironriders starting soon. It's going to take us through 2021. All right, everyone. Thanks again for coming on the call. Um, I will let you get back to your evenings. Uh-huh.